Thank you for tuning in. And warning, this episode is packed. And if you're truly interested in learning more about innovation and advanced technology in AEC and the funding and thesis behind it, this episode is for you. And you're most likely going to want to listen to this more than once. Our guest is KP Reddy, founder and managing partner at Shadow Ventures, who's also a second generation civil engineer and successful tech entrepreneur, advisor, and investor. And we get into a lot, including the future of AEC, the role of technology, what's happening right now in terms of innovation, why we need to think differently about both what we do and how we do it, what types of firms have the biggest advantages, the macro themes that will continue to drive our industry, how venture capital works, and why we need to find a way to get a few more nerdy friends. This episode also pairs well with several other episodes we've shared related to advanced technology, systems design, client experience, and leading our firms forward during times like these, which I've also linked to in the show notes for you and your team to check out. And so without any further delay, let's learn a lot more about stuff we'll be glad we strategically invested this next hour to know. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with KP Reddy, founder and managing partner at Shadow Ventures, and we'll be talking about technology, innovation, and venture capital in AEC. Welcome to the podcast, KP. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited that you're here diving into these topics um, and got energized after our last conversation. Um, but I wanted to begin um, with you just kind of sharing a little bit about you, your career, Shadow Ventures, Shadow Partners, and what you're doing now in and around AEC. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just background. Um, second generation civil engineer. Um, started writing code when I was 13 for my dad, basically building engineering software for him. Um, went and went to Georgia Tech, got a civil engineering degree, practiced for a bit, and then launched, you know, with two credit cards, launched a startup. And uh, was super fortunate to launch that, launch that in 1997. And we were able to take that public in 1999. So went from two guys to 1,200 people and on the NASDAQ in about three years. And um, that was one of those, what I call the, the full cycle experience and everything in between. And um, hung out there for a little bit, but really after that, wanted to start something in the space and uh, saw this BIM technology. Um, and, and my first startup was initially construction management on the web in 1997. And the contractors were like, you're insane. Like, what is this internet thing? 
So it was definitely like too early to market. And when I saw 2003, 2002, 2003, where BIM and Revit was starting to take off a little bit, and then Autodesk bought them, I said, these are the same people that thought the internet was a fad. There might be an opportunity here. So built a company around that and sold that to a group on the West Coast. And it's been about three years out in San Francisco um, working with them. And then left them and uh, went and joined Frank Geary for a year and then basically kind of retired. Um, said I was going to take some time off. And and I did. I took about two years off. And my alma mater, Georgia Tech, called me and asked me to come help out at their incubator. And I did that. And then they, uh, through a series of events, they put me in charge of the whole thing. Um, and so that kind of really flipped the switch for me to like going from entrepreneur to investor. Um, because I just realized like I didn't, as an entrepreneur, you have to think about the next five or 10 years of your life, devoting it to something. And I wasn't sure that there was one thing I wanted to go do. Um, so I started investing on my own. And then I started getting phone calls from people in the industry, friends of mine in the industry at engineering firms and construction companies saying, hey, we want to start investing in startups or we want to do innovation. How do we do better innovation? You're the startup. You know, you're the only civil engineer that's done tech startups that we know. Um, can you come help us out? So I started helping a lot of these firms out. Uh, initially, the you know the Thornton Tomasettis of the world helped them launch a lot of what they've done and, and firms like that. So it advised and then that migrated from well, why don't you invest in startups? Well, we'll give you the money. Why don't you go invest in startups? So um, the firm was basically founded by several key, you know, I, I look at my my investors and it was several executives that just said, look, you know, this needs to happen. We'll support you. Um, and so that's, that's how the firm started. And so Shadow Partners is kind of the advisory part that we started with. We still do those things. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit, but... Um, but ventures, you know, we're on our we're on our second fund, and I would say eighty percent of our backing is from industry. So mostly engineering, construction, building product companies. The other twenty percent are financial investors that I believe keep us honest. You know, the strategic investors get a lot of value regardless of the investment. They get a lot, just a ton of value by knowing what's going on. Um, but if all you do is have strategic investors. The expectations are pretty low on returns. They say things like, well, if you just don't lose our money, we're happy. Um, your financial investors are probably, you know, for us, we have investors that are in 20 or 30 venture funds across industries. And so they they rank us against their investor, against their other fund managers. So, you know, it's it's a good dynamic that they keep us honest. And uh, and quite honestly, as a fund manager, that's that's how we make money is through investing and in exits. That's that's the business. Um, but through that process, it was interesting, you know, I, I started to see like a, this imperative to do better. Like I started talking to more and more executives that had this deep rooted in imperative, whether it's because of decarbonization, whether it's because they're seeing due to labor shortages, just not able to get work done, like whatever it is, everyone has kind of their own top of mind topic. Um, and so it was driving this interesting imperative. And I started getting people saying, look, you know, I really want to invest in your fund, but, you know, my firm can't do it because of, you know, we're a partnership and we just don't know how to invest that way. Or you know, we've never done a venture fund and 
you know, I'm not sure that we can, but we want to kind of be part of it. Uh, we want to be part of what you're building. And so that's where Shadow Partners kind of came up, where um, people join. It's kind of a strategic partnership model where they can join Shadow Partners and and be part of the movement, so to speak, even if they can't invest in the fund. So that's the dynamic. If you can invest in the fund and that's what's interesting to you, you invest in the fund. If you just want to be part of it and be engaged, then you join Shadow Partners. That's that's great. Well, thank you for that that background and also the distinction between a um, a strategic investor and a financial investor. And and I want to dive into that and some of the mechanics behind venture capital, too. Um, but I'd like to start as we dive in a little bit more here with a um, something that you mentioned during a previous conversation we had. And then I, I saw you mentioned something very similar on a LinkedIn post that got a lot of attention uh, and it kind of read in part creating the next generation AEC firm will be focused on customer experience and powered by innovation. Hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit and share a little bit more about what you mean by yeah. you know, customer experience and powered by innovation? Yeah. So I think first of all, um, as an industry, we don't actually design or deliver a customer experience to the market. We get hired to do work. And if you think about our industry is hired by asset owners, asset developers, they're building something that generates cash flow, that generates income. And, and we're kind of a necessary evil of that process. It's not like everyone gets excited saying, man, I love my civil engineer, X, Y, like that's not how it works. Um, we're kind of in that bucket of very few people love their lawyers and accountants. They're just part of the game, right? And so I think we're we're generally part of that. So if you start talk, talking about innovation and all you do is focus on internal innovation, oh, we can do it cheaper, better, faster. Um, the only thing the market will, re will resonate with the market is the cheaper. The better and faster part, I'm not sure that they'll res it'll resonate with them. So whether you're implementing AI or some other machine learning or, I mean, anything, right? Any innovation, if you do it back of the house, it's a massive race to the bottom as far as revenue margins, et cetera. In other words, let's take AI because everybody likes to talk about AI. If you use AI to deliver a project faster, better, your customer will find out. It's inevitable. And then what they're going to do is ask you, say, hey, I was paying you a million dollars to design that building before. Now you're using AI. I'm going to pay you $500,000. And that's why we end up, you know, it ends up being a massive race to the bottom. Instead, if we focus, how do we deploy innovation to create a, a customer experience that matters, that's differentiated? In other words, if I put out an RFP to 10 firms, what do I get? I get a bunch of project profiles and I get a bunch of resumes. And if I line up all the project profiles, they're probably all very similar. If I land, line up all the, prep, uh, the bios, they're probably all very similar. It's a big so what? So if everybody at, at face value is giving me the same customer experience, what do I have left with, left to do, right? Availability and price. And so customers tend to care more about price. They'll, they might wait two weeks to make you, make, if you're available, if they can pay 20% less. So I, I think the big mistake 
that that can be made in this iteration of the of the industry is to really look at innovation of like how do I become more efficient versus how do I really benefit the customer and how do I craft an engagement model that's highly differentiated that they walk away and they feel like man I love working with that firm I just love the way they do x y and z versus this other firm that does not do those things or they have a different experience how do you, any thoughts pop in your mind or experiences that you've heard of, or maybe you heard vesting in that sort of who's moving into that space and what do you think that looks like? And are, are there technologies that can play a role or do you think that's as much mindset and understanding what experiences and, and starting to understand the the emotional part of that and the friction points and the removing the friction points and, the, and actually just design for that? Or do you think it, or see any specific things happening? Yeah, I mean, we're working with a half dozen firms on this on this entire kind of mission because it it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, like one of my um, investors said, it's like between Twitter and LinkedIn. I think I see messages from you before I see anything else first thing in the morning. Um, so you know, we've 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 had a lot of people approach me and say like, how do we? You know, what are you talking about? Just kind of like, um, what are you talking about? So. We're starting to implement and starting to design, like help them design those experiences. Um, I'll give you an example. I was working with a firm about three years, three years ago, large architectural firm. They were working with a tech company. And the tech company said, hey, we want to be able to like log in and see how things are going while you're designing. In other words, in a Google Doc, I can open up a Google Doc and see people editing and kind of that real-time collaboration. I can do that with a Google Sheet. Why can't I log into your designer's machine anytime and see, watch them design? Because maybe they're designing something the way I don't like it and I, and I can give them feedback and I can just comment on their process. The architecture firm said, absolutely not. Like you don't get to... That's not how we collaborate. We will deliver interim deliverables. You can review them. We will send you renderings, whatever. But you don't get to be part of the design process. And it was so interesting um, in talking to that customer. They said, did you hear what they said? Like, this is what they told us. We don't get to be part of the design process for the building that we are paying for. And these are the people that are designing it for us. And we're not part of the process. Like we were banned. Like it's, that's not something we do. And so you just think about that and you start picking apart that, right? You unpack that on so many levels. We're the, we're the only industry where you get to spend, you get the pleasure of spending $250 million to build an asset and you buy it sight unseen with a lot of trust me's. And you see it, you buy it sight unseen, and you don't even know how it's going to perform. And if you're an experienced developer, you know, kind of a serious, a serial developer, right? Maybe you have some insights. Maybe you have, like, it's your building. Maybe you have some things that you will understand better than the designer. Um, so it's a fascinating spot we're in. But I think it was never contemplated. You know, you, and back in the day, you know, back when my dad was an engineer, nobody was... A customer didn't come and say, I'm going to stand over you and watch you draw, right? That was never really an option for either party, really. And so I think 
we haven't leveraged this technology, you know, to, to really create a different experience. And that society overall is already moved in like other profession, well, other industries have moved into the experience. And so as humans in modern society, we've been accustomed to having better experiences. And so mm -hmm. how can we not lag so much that it hurts us? How can we actually either keep pace or advance? So it actually helps us as a profession. How the, this, well, the second, I want to get into that. Um, the, the second part of the, um, that LinkedIn post and what we talked about too, that really resonated with me. It was, you mentioned something along the lines of a hundred percent, you know, as it relates to, you know, AEC, the future generation of AEC firms will be focused on the customer experience and powered by innovation that we just talked about, but you noted a hundred percent of AEC firms, CEOs understand this. Yeah. But that their struggle is having a sound strategy and confidence in their team's ability to sort of execute on a bold endeavor because it's an mm -hmm. unnatural business movement. Could you unpack that a little bit too? Yeah. I think, you know, the CEOs I talked to say, KP, you are spot on. I don't know how to do it. And I don't believe my teams know how to do it because they've never done it. They didn't work at Apple. Like they don't even. They, they have been trained on customer experience. We've never, none of us grew up through the industry thinking about a customer experience. So they they lack the experience in it. And I can go ask them like, hey, we should design a customer experience. They're going to look at me funny. But I, you know, they're the ones that take the brunt of, you know, kind of think about the relation relationship management with, with the customers. And they agree 100% that that is, that is an industry challenge, and that is something we should be doing. They just don't know how to get there with the teams. You know, they ask me things like, "Should I hire someone from Apple?" I'm like, I don't know. Like, that, that might be part of the answer, but I, I think, you know, not all organizations are the same. I think if you, um, I, you know, I have to think in these organizations, there are people that get it, and probably if given the opportunity, they would love to be part of such an endeavor. They may not be a, a VP of engineering. They might not be a PE. They may not be any of those things. They might be a, a poli sci degree working in your marketing department. And, and I think that's 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 the that's the challenge, right? The people in power necessarily don't necessarily have the skill sets to execute on it. And so I think executives, they they know they know that's the issue. I I spoke I've, I speak enough at conferences when I say we are a necessary burden to our customers as part of the, what they want to actually get done. Not one person disagrees with me. And you're, I mean, you're, I guess I don't know for sure, but maybe you can clarify. I, I, I suspect, or I think that a lot of your firms that you work with directly, I'll, I'll kind of put them in the small bigs category, like mm -hmm. a, a thousand, 2000, 3000 people. I, I don't maybe confirm, but, but I, I just curious that, is that kind of the size of firm that you're speaking with? And I'm just curious that your, when you talk to firms or if you've so, both spoken with firms, less than a hundred people, less than 500 people, do you think they get it too? They do. I think, um, I talked to a lot of firms, like of all sizes, right? And I think the the middle market firms have the biggest opportunity. So call it sub 2000, greater than 200, I think, um, you know, have the biggest opportunity because they do have, they have the right resources, they have the patience um, and it'll be meaningful impact, right? All, all these endeavors require a high degree of patience and they're not things that you move 
quickly against. You know, it, it, this isn't one of those move fast type of situations. If you move fast, you're just going to burn a lot of money and get nowhere. It's, it's much more about a deliberate cadence. I have talked to several firms called in the 25 to 50 people. And I think they understand it because I think, you know, their question is, you know, we try to do, you know, we have to have something to differentiate ourselves. We're small. And so they do try to implement technology in a way that the customer is exposed to it. They try to deploy innovation in a way that the customer is getting exposed to it. Um, so, I, so I think some of those firms, and I think those are those firms have the greatest opportunity. You know, it used to be a thing where if I want to deploy technology, you know, call it pre-cloud, I had to have an IT person and a this person and a that person to get any work, servers, all kinds of stuff, right? I think the pervasiveness of technology and cloud enablement, I'm not even sure if you're if you're a 50-person company, I'm not even sure you should have an IT person. You know, like what are they doing all day? Um, because I think you now have digital natives in your firm that don't, they don't need to be trained on anything. They watch YouTube videos and, you know, cause I think smaller firms tend to have younger folks working there. Um, and so I think that, I think they get it a little bit more. I think as you get bigger, um, the no police shows up, right? The IT department. Oh no, you can't do that. No, you can't load that. No, that's not an authorized app. You know, and I think that's where things get a really a little bit clunky. And I think if you look at the large, large firms, they're content. They're content. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't believe they really, they, they'll say the words, they don't really need to drive change. How do you, if you're a firm, whether it be on the smaller side or or even in the, the, the mid-market size, if you, how do you think about developing a, a, an effective strategy or the bold endeavor towards mm -hmm. technology and innovation? How do you think about that? I guess, number one, like to get to that place where, okay, this is an endeavor that won't commoditize us. This is an endeavor that will actually differentiate us. And then maybe picking the right people in the organization to come alongside that and help drive that, even if you do have some outside people who help. But how do you think about that, like getting that right combination of yeah. internal energy towards it and, and focus? Yeah. So one of the things, it's kind of interesting in, in startup world, you know, at Georgia Tech and even now, like we, we teach these workshops um, and, and basically the process is customer discovery. It's very simple, right? You get outside of your office and you go talk to your customers and you have deliberate conversations about what they need, what their wants are, how things would be different. And it's it's not market research. And in a startup, right, the CEO goes and does it. So imagine if the CEO of a structural engineering firm gets out of the office and spends the next 30 days, I'm gonna go meet with all of our top customers and have amazing conversations. I'm gonna have a hundred conversations in 30 days, which is the cadence I expect out of my startups when I'm coaching startups. Tell me you have to go talk to hundred people in 30 days. The CEO of a structural engineering firm gets out, talks to a hundred customers in 30 days to talk about how 
you know, what they want, what their needs are, what the approach should be. That's step one. And that's not, oh, I'm going to send my marketing person out to do marketing research. This is nose to nose, face to face to really say, hey, I want to reinvent how we do things. And all that matters is what my customer wants, what my client wants. Because I think we run around with this false narrative. Well, all my clients just want cheaper prices. All my clients just want the work done faster. It's like, that means you're having the wrong conversations or you're having the wrong conversation. You're having conversations with the wrong people. Yeah. So, I mean, it almost sounds like that. If we're thinking about advanced technology and innovation, it truly is an executive function. It's not something buried within the organization, IT or no IT. It's yeah. executive driven. If you believe that the innovation that's happening in our industry is kind of the imperative understanding it, deploying it, accelerating adoption is the imperative for your, for not just for your firm, but for the industry. That might be the most important thing the executive leadership should be working on. It's not something to hand off to the IT department or, you know, I'm not opposed to innovation groups, but that's much more tactical. That's, that's after you have a strategy. So the strategy is through that customer discovery, if you will, with, with the, I guess, with, with the, with the knowledge and the, 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 the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you're hearing and what that means, you know, from an executive kind of mm -hmm. taking that in. So, okay, now I understand what I heard and what that means. And I can say, well, what do you mean by that? And drill in and really mm -hmm. ask the right question. So all of that can happen better at an executive level. How about if you know, finding people in the organization that could be that native digital or that forward thinking native analog for that matter, who will be like, okay, I can get buy-in on this and I can help run this and understand this versus like highlighting them and finding them and bringing them to the forefront versus maybe fighting folks who were just busy with yesterday's fire and, you know, just resistors in the organizations. How do you think of that internal combination, even if you did sort of discover something with that, this is something we should advance. How do you see organizations organizing around that? Yeah, I mean, that's the, look, I think, you know, one of the biggest things executives do is, you know, most of them in our industry inherit a culture, and then they have to evolve the culture. And unfortunately, um, when you evolve a culture, not everybody agrees. Not everybody's going to be on board. Um, some people are just excited to fill out their timesheets and go home and think things are just fine. And I think when you look at that, you have to start making decisions about who you want to be with, who who's going to take this journey with you and who are, who's going to be part of this. And um, I think that's that's an important aspect to how you think about the culture. Because I think that the misnomer is sometimes that as you iterate, I mean, culture is an iteration, right? The culture is an iteration. And as you iterate your culture, you know, some people just aren't going to fit anymore. But there's a whole lot of new people that will fit. And they will come in and they will give you 110% and they will be mission oriented right, right along with you. I mean, I, I had one of my interns this summer. Um, do like research. I said, I want you to go to all these firms 
And it was everywhere from like ENR1 down to ENR500. And I want you to pattern recognize how, you know, which ones are very similar. What, you know, what we call the lookalikes based purely on their website, just based on their website. And it was fascinating because they did pattern recognize. They didn't pattern out to what they would talk about. None of them talk about how, but they all talk about their, about what. They all talk about innovation. Or, you know, a grouping would talk about innovation. A grouping would talk about, you know, the smaller firms talked more about their community and being in the community and part of the community. The larger firms talked about innovation and diversity. The mid-sized firms, um, you know, they would talk about, I mean, all of them talked about sustainability. But none of them said how. None of them said how they were being innovative, but there's no how to it all. But it was like the same web designer, same marketing agency designed all the websites. And, and it, was, it was pretty fascinating. It was well, pretty fascinating. Like, you, you mentioned it, you alluded to it at the beginning, a lot of, you know, when I was in practice, I mean, there'd be a lot of clients who would say, y'all look the same. Like, I don't know what you, you're right. coming in here. Your proposal looks the same, reads the same. Y'all rent your suit at the same place. I don't know what it is you're doing, but you're all the same. And so I guess that, that, that continues on our websites too. So, so. How um, I wanted to just kind of share, I, I wanted to, to kind of get into some of what you're investing in just to almost give like a paint the picture of what is innovation that's happening, um, you know, in the firms that you're seeing that come across your, your plate, so to speak, what, who you're investing in, what that looks like. But I wanted to just dive in. I know you mentioned working with companies and as they're developing some of these, these innovations that maybe sometimes they're spun out. And to, to be able to sort of grow on their own, even if they're hatched within a, a company, one of these mid-sized companies. Could you just share a little bit about sort of, I guess, having some innovation and advanced technology within a firm, but then it gets to a certain point where the best advice might be to spin that out and what that looks like? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of like on the, you know, when we consult with com you know, with these companies, it's usually a, you know, how are we doing with adopting innovation? What are we doing to create innovation? You know, it's kind of internal innovation, and then you know, and then how are we adopting external innovation? So that's always a big question. The interesting thing is, the majority of things that are built inside a firm might have been proprietary or interesting at one time, but they fail to keep up with the technology and the product. You know, we see firms that have built their own CRM in house. 30 years ago, 20 years ago, they built it. They're still running it. Um, well, maybe Salesforce wasn't that great 20 years ago, right? Like maybe it wasn't a fit. And, um, you know, it's like, hey guys, you could probably move over to Salesforce. It's $15 a month per user. And I think you're going to get everything you need plus more, right? So there's some things that are built where at that moment in time, I met a general contractor that built their own construction management software. Because at the time, there wasn't a lot of good stuff out there. So they decided to build it themselves. But you look at it now, it doesn't support mobile because mobile didn't exist when they built it. <laughs> you know, So it's like, hey, you can probably buy something. So um, there is a lot of internal innovation that's just proprietary and useful to for internal process that can probably be replaced. Um, a lot of the other innovation 
that can be spun out has everything. So there's, there's a few things that you have to look at is one, what is the market outside of the firm? Um, is it big enough to warrant external funding or to fund it you know, uh, individually? Um, the second thing is, which this is, I've never seen it. The team that invented it in-house is probably not the team that can spin it out and run it externally. Um, our business is mostly a services business and a services business is a very different business than a product business. So to spin out a product um, and hire the right people and have a product strategy and take it to market and, and have salespeople, right, selling it and have all that process, most people don't have that in-house. You have to bring an external team in to really do that. So you have to attract that team. So the idea has to be interesting enough to attract the right team. The other reason why it rarely makes sense for the team that invented it to move on with the spin out is compensation. It's startup world. I'm gonna give you a base of 40 and you're gonna get stock options. And we have no health insurance, we have no 401k, we have none of those things. Um, the minute you start paying people the way they're being paid in their day job, so to speak, it never works. That's, not, that's just not how startup world works. Um, but we've got a pretty defined process. We've done it 10 times for AEC firms, um, two times extremely successfully. Um, and so I think we have a pretty good formula now of how to do it. But I think a lot of firms, um, back to the get out of the office and go talk to people, um, executives get convinced like, hey, I've got really smart people. And if they tell me that this is, the next big thing, and there's a huge market for it. I just kind of listen to them, um, but they don't go out to the market and say, "Let me go talk to 100 people." When I, I tell executives this all the time, like customer, I didn't invent customer discovery. You can Google it; it's all over the place. Um, if someone in your team comes to you and says, "Hey, I've got this fantastic idea," say, "Sounds great. Um, go talk to 100 people and tell me what they say." And by the way, you don't get to talk to 100 people that you know. You get to, you have to go cold call to 100 people because that's also a test. If you can cold call someone and they respond, that tells you there's interest in what you're doing and what you're building. So, um, and, and I think that's what's important. You, you have to really understand, is there a market for it? There's a lot of stuff that, and, and, and we kind of get stuck being in venture capital. You know, we, we play the winner takes all game, right? So we want all of our companies to be multi-billion dollar companies. That's our, that's our strategy. That's our investment thesis. That, that doesn't mean that's everybody's investment thesis. Um, if I told you like, hey, you can go build a nice $25 million a year revenue company and generate $5 million a year in profit, you might go, hey, that sounds pretty fantastic. Not for VC. That's not fantastic for VC. That's totally boring for us. Um, so it doesn't mean that everything has to be VC fundable. But it does mean that it has to have it has to follow some business model to justify external funding, right? And so, and, and I can see how the the just being adjacent to but listening to a lot of um, people people I know in the startup world in tech space, it, it is a very different business model and a different mentality. And um, I, I can I can definitely see that. How without necessarily naming names, what what are some examples of of 
technologies or innovations that have been spun out of okay, maybe yeah. conventional design firms? Yeah, Thorne Tomasetti spun out because um, I was actually interim CEO for it. So I helped them spin it out. And I was, um, I, I do this thing where I'll play interim CEO and everybody knows that I have so many things going on. There's no way I'm permanent CEO. So it signals the market that, hey, I'm just keeping the seat warm. Reach out to me if you think you might want to take over. Um, so we spun out a company called OnScale uh, out of Thorne Tomasetti. And was I was co I was uh, interim CEO for a little bit, and then I was able to recruit a friend of mine from Georgia Tech. They kind of reached out and said, "Hey, what are you doing with this?" And um, he came and took over as CEO, and uh, built the company over a few years. And last year they exited to Ansys. What did Chances, they? What did that company do specifically in their space? Uh, it was cloud-based finite element analysis. So like kind of hardcore engineering software. And Ansys is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded engineering software. They're huge. Um, and they saw what they built and acquired them. How what, what just I'd love to get some more kind of examples because I know I run into, you know, CEOs and and principals and principal teams that are excited about, you know, innovation. And so I think this conversation is going to be very helpful and informative understanding like what is out there, what do we have? And I'd just love to, maybe if you could talk about some of your, the the firms that you're, or the investments that companies that you're investing in, just what are some of the types of things that are going on right now that are being funded that someone does see a winner take all or a huge financial upside, things that are tangible to our profession, our industry, that is happening right now. And I know like, just again, paint the picture of what is happening. Um, and I know what, you mentioned something with drones and bridges and buildings and pavement and calculations and cost estimates. And, but it, it, maybe that example, and then maybe a few yeah. others of this is what's happening right now yeah, being yeah. funded. So one of our companies we invest in is a company called Aaron, A-R-E-N. Um, they're at A-R-E-N Basically you can fly a drone or any other image capture and fly it around a bridge. It'll create a 3D model of the bridge. It'll find all the cracks in the bridge. It'll map them all out. It'll run it through engineering software and analyze it and give you a full picture of like what the maintenance needs to be and ongoing maintenance of that bridge is. That was their first case use case. They can now do that with facades, roofs, and pavements as well. So Basically, the idea of bridge inspection, roof inspection, facade inspection, all fully automated, uh, all powered by machine learning and AI. So that's one of those ones where, you know, bridges were an interesting first endeavor, because if you if you Google it, we all know that the bridges in America are woefully under um, evaluated. They're just not inspected. There's just not enough people to do it. Um, there's not enough firms that want to do it. It's, you know, engineer for an engineering firm, it's doing work for the DOT. It's not that, um, it's not high profit margin and it's kind of a pain. So they just don't get inspected. So this has been a great way to take something that, you know, once again, that impacts society and, and do it cheaper, better, faster, and more consistently. And so, so that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at, right? Nobody else is really doing it the way they're doing it. 
and they have some fantastic announcements coming out soon, but um, it's just next level. You know, we, we look at technology and if I, if, if we do a demo, if it doesn't feel a little bit like magic, like it's being done wrong. And these guys literally, they give you the demo. You're like, what's going on here? Like, this is magic. Any other so, examples from the firms that you're working with? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've done really well with, um, you know, one of the, when you think about like problem solving, Green Badger is another good one around lead management. And so they do full ESG management. So they're looking at green building. They're looking at, you know, whether you have enough DBE participation on a project. But what they're doing is really providing a, a dashboard across the entire organization so you understand what's going on. You know, are you meeting kind of the, the green building criteria on projects that you're one, that you design them a certain way, or are they being built a certain way? Um, and, and that's super interesting from a data perspective. You know, the software itself isn't necessarily the, the big magic, but once you start to aggregate enough data, you really start to understand what the trends are and what people are doing and how do you rank stack. And I think that's super important in terms of an, an, an era of greenwashing and everybody's trying to decarb and this and that. You know, you hear the, the, the words. But how do you know how you're doing? You know, are you doing better or worse? And so Green Badger does a really good job from a data management to really help firms understand how they're doing. Um, Icon 3D, which is our uh, was one of our first investments, they do 3D printed houses. So um, we like them. You know, they were one of our early investments. So robots, 3D printing houses with concrete. Bot Built is a robotics company that frames houses, so robots framing houses. So, you know, you suck in a, a 2D plan, house plan, it turns it into a 3D framing plan, and the robots go off and frame the frame the house. Um, so, you know, we like we like robots, we like machine learning and AI. We've always been into that. So we're we're a little bit nerdy that way. But yet, obviously, investments to address housing shortage and the costs of development and uh, even the, the first what you mentioned with the drone failing infrastructure and if 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 robots are building something well it's the skilled labor gap and if you're so it, it's kind of fits into your overall thesis too of some of the big industry themes mm -hmm. of yeah. things happening right now and so i guess that I mean, part of the the takeaway is we talk about you know we've heard 3d printed homes we've heard about some of these things but they're actually happening yeah. And there, there are investments being made in that. 100%. And I, th I think what's important, you know, these macro themes fit squarely into our industry, whether it's decarbonization, failing in infrastructure, affordable housing, energy transition. We are the only industry that can really drive that change and solve those problems. Um, it's not someone else. Apple's not going to show up and fix affordable housing. Sorry, they're not doing it. Neither is Google and neither is Amazon. Um, it is our industry that will solve these problems. And I think that's where you're seeing the bulk of the innovation. And it's the things that we are really focused on. Because if you look at large macro trends, that's how you invest in companies that will be financially meaningful. If you look at tiny little niche markets, um, you'll never invest in something that's going to make a difference. How do you think with, with these technolo 
technological innovations happening, how do you think as a design industry, we need to act in order to leverage them for the best value? Like, is it a mindset? Is it just how do you think if this technology is available and it will be maybe available more each year for the next decade and and then there's a transformation that's going to happen along the way but how do we think we should think in in order to have a mindset to okay it's here it's not threatening let's leverage this what how do you, how do you think we should approach that yeah i think there's a few things you know i, I look at like 3d printed houses right that is a new technology um that probably has more use cases than even the founders have contemplated. So I think it's important that industry look at something and be a bit entrepreneurial and say, Ooh, this is interesting. I could use this to build custom retaining walls. Guess what? They're not thinking about that. Right. And so I think part of it is we, you know, there's, there's two big things that are very, that, there's two vectors that make our industry very fragmented. One is geography, right? We don't get the benefit of making a bunch of iPhones in China and shipping them across the world. That's not the business we're in. We can't do that. Our products take up a lot more space. <laughs> um, so we're, we're highly fragmented by geography. When you look at these new technologies, one of their biggest obstacles is how do we get into more geographies with people that know how to operate and manage and that sort of thing. The second thing that creates the next level of fragmentation is the building types. Bridges, K through 12, gyms, data centers, hotels, right? It's, you, you, may, you pull out that list. And so now you throw geographies against building types just really chops up the entire industry. So I think that's where if you're a, a civil engineering firm that does a lot of work in the hotel industry, then your lens will be, how do I apply this to the market I already know? How do I apply this to my customers? And honestly, those are great conversations to have with your customers. Hey, have you checked out this 3D printing stuff? Have you ever thought of like, want me to go look into that for you? Imagine that. Hey, bridge owner, have you seen some of this stuff going on? You want me to go look into that for you? Let me go, you know, I mean, because the trusted, the trusted advisor is, is our industry to most of these owners. The startups, it takes them a lot of time and energy to get that level of trust built. And so I think when we look at the industry as both a channel to market, but also a contributor to these innovations, I think it's, it's super important. You know, we invest in startups that are sub five people. They know a lot. They're very smart. They're very aggressive. But they don't know everything about every market. And I think that's where that's where the collaboration happens. You know, we have called a, a hundred um, strategic partners between shadow partners and shadow ventures, corporates that have committed um, to work with us to drive change. And um, they offer so much to our startups. I mean, our startups are super lucky. They get so many insights because sometimes it's like, oh, have you thought about this? But also sometimes, hey guys, this is the cultural headwind we're dealing with. This isn't gonna work on a federal project because you have to have, here's the checklist of all the things you have to have to work on a federal project. 
And then guess what? The startup doesn't waste time trying to get on federal projects if they can't check that list where they go spend the time to, to meet that checklist requirements. And so that, that, that type of advice, it's really hard for startups to really know where the markets are. And, um, and I think that having this partnership with industry is super important to them. And do you see like that? I mean, thank you for for that. And I I see the the partnership. If you were to think of firms um, and, and kind of a broad, maybe two ends of the spectrum, a traditional engineering and architecture design firm leveraging technology better ten years from now versus tech firms having engineering and architectural services. Do you think it, it even the partnership model aside? Do you think it leans one way or another ten years from now? No, I think it's. Uh, I think it looks very different. So it used to be, you know, uh, I, I like. I like to. Say I'm a. I'm a great purveyor of everything tech industry. Like, ask me anything. Um, so, if you think about it, back in the day, you went to IBM, you bought your servers from them, you bought their software from them, and you bought all your professional services from them. And what happened is over time, same thing with SAP, same thing with a lot of the, you know, what we used to call the big iron technology companies. Then what happened over time, you started moving into best of breed, which meant I want to use Salesforce for my CRM. I want to use Oracle for my financials. I want you know, So you went and then bought from five different software companies, and then you hired third-party systems integrators. These were not people that made money off of the hard uh, off of the equipment or the software. They charged services to implement and deploy a solution. What I can see happening is the tech companies are always going to be product companies, and services companies are always going to be services companies. I mean, you can make shifts, you can try different things, but generally, it's 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 a whole nother business. Transforming a services company into a product company is like a do over. Uh, it's like send everybody home and use your cash to start a company from scratch, right? So I think the partnership starts to look like that. So what that takes is, you know, I used to run a systems integration shop a long time ago. That means that you as the consultant, you have to have deep product knowledge of a lot of products and you have to know how to put them together to deliver the solution, right? So I think, you know, back to, what do I tell exactly? Go talk to 100 people. Let me know what they said. Last I checked, none of these asset owners buy plans and specs. That is not what they're buying. That's what we deliver to them. That is not what they're buying. They are trying to buy a physical product that performs a certain way and meets their needs. So as you think about the ability for the industry to really think about all these product companies and having deep and understand a deep understanding of the technologies to A, recommend it, and then B, integrate it and make it part of that. I think that's that's where the future is. I don't know that one, anyone's displacing anyone, but I think, you know, um, I like to pick on the big incumbent software companies, you know. The end customer doesn't care what CAD software, what they don't care about all that. That's not what the end customer cares about. Um, so I think it's important that industry work with the startups and really start to create and define new business models. I was going to act. I was just going to run and say, well, how, my mind is spent. Like, how do we, how do you think the business model 
evolution happens or or is there a dr more dramatic change? But how do you see business models for traditional today engineering architecture firms or construction outfits? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at Aaron and what they're doing with bridge inspections, right? So if you look at an engineering firm, for them to send out a team, fly a drone, hang off of a bridge, inspect it, come to some conclusion, that's a lot of work and there's a lot of liability there. But what if engineering firm went to a DOT and said, look, we want to make you part of a bridge maintenance program. We're going to charge you once a year. And it's like SaaS, but for bridges, <laughs> right? It's, it's part of the deal. And we will manage all of it. We will manage the maintenance. And, we, you know, and, and this is the fee for that. Because we can go in, we can assess what the current condition is. We can predict what the future condition is, and we can package that into an annual fee. And for the next 20 years, we you've outsourced management of your bridge to us. One, that's a great business model. Probably pays pretty well. The gross margins are fantastic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of these things. If you talk to my my older kids, they'll they'll tell you that all that does all day is talk about asymmetry. It's, it's all about creating asymmetric business models. The problem with services is it's pretty symmetric. It's labor arbitrage. You look at like, oh, no, we're going to come up with build management as a build, um, bridge management as a service. That is a very asymmetric business model. You get to make money when you're not even doing work. Sometimes you might have to do work, but sometimes you don't have to do work and you get paid either way. And to the end customer, they're like, wow, I have the peace of mind. I can budget, right? Because budget and budget appropriation for DOTs is not true. It's a pain. If they know that they can just line item, here's how much it costs me every year for the next 20 years, sign me up. But that takes a different way of thinking about the business model and, and really creating that kind of service offering. And that, and that takes collaborating with, you know, a startup like ours that, that can help you understand what that would take. Well, and to your point, you know the specific friction and pain points that a customer would have, and you can address that some of that pain point with the, the business model. Hundred percent. How? Um, I, well, this has been great. I, I was just curious from the the VC um, as we kind of start to to close out here. But just as a venture capitalist, I, I mean, how? What does the pitch look like? I, how, I was just curious. Could you walk through like how many pitches do you get? What, what do they look like? What are some of the the more interesting ones that maybe you passed on, or some of the ones that were way out in left field? But just curious at what that process looks like and kind of what you see. Um, we, and what you have seen. Yeah, we get about 50 inbound a week. Um, me and my CTO, Matt Ullman, we do we personally interview about 10 a week. So we do 30-minute kind of Tuesdays. That's what we do is 30-minute. They come and pitch us 30 minutes at a time. The one thing we're very different, um, Matt and I both come from the entrepreneurial world. We think it's kind of disrespectful to a startup founder to have them talk to a 20-something-year-old analyst. Like, no, you, day one, you talk to decision makers. Um, and the reality there is in 30 minutes, in the first seven minutes, we know whether we're interested. Um, and then we can give some advice. If we're disinterested, maybe we can give them some advice and help them. You know, we do want, in the world of like, we want 
founders to really chase their dreams and be successful and uh hopefully you know not you know not make as many mistakes as they should be so we, we'd like to share our decades of experience right and so sometimes within the first seven minutes like hey this isn't a fit for us but but here's what i would think about here's what you should go research so you know that's, that's about 10 a week 10 to 12 a week um so that's kind of the volume a lot of what we see is you know i wrote a, a textbook on bim so we see a lot of bim stuff and and part of the challenge is you know you look at feature tool product company we see a lot of features and tools oh i built a great plugin for revit like not interested you might be able to build a nice little business there um, we like pure play product companies with defensible technology that they build something interesting. A lot of times these are tech enabled services companies. Well, how do you do that? Oh, well, we have a team in India that goes through the drawings and you know, finds that they're like, okay, great. That's, it's not really technology. You can probably build a great business, but that's not really technology. Um, and then we want to see things that scale well. Um, so for example, industrialized construction or prefab we see so many, we probably see more deals than anyone in that space. Our strategy is picks and shovels. So we'll, we'll invest in technology companies that support uh, offsite construction, but offsite construction itself has a boundary of service area. You're not gonna build a house in Miami and ship it to Seattle, right? So there, there's, there's no scale really, other than like go build another factory, go build another one and another and another and another, and it just goes on forever, right? Um, we don't invest in marketplaces. We would have passed on Uber. We would have passed on Airbnb because it takes billions of dollars to get the supply and demand side really working. And, and it's really hard for us to imagine being in a deal that long. It's really, really tough. Um, so, so we see a lot of interesting businesses that just aren't a fit for venture capital. And we really try hard to explain to people that venture capital is a type of financial product that has certain characteristics. We're not making up the rules, the spreadsheets create the rules, right? Um, and so a lot of times it's not a venture fit, but like I said, it might be a nice little business for somebody, but it's not gonna be venture fundable. So those are kind of the conversations we have. The things that we're seeing interesting, we're so excited that the tech community is done building pizza delivery apps and dating apps and all kinds of nonsense because they were attracting top talent because they were getting top funding. So now we're as things have kind of cooled off, we're starting to see, like we like to see a CEO and a CTO as co-founders. The quality of CTOs is coming up because I don't think they're distracted by these nonsense businesses. I think they're just, they're now focused on, you know, we like to invest in companies that are solving real problems that impact society. You know, I'm still a civil engineer. Like I care about the big things still. Um, and so I think we're now seeing techno the technologists coming back and, you know, coming into our industry and being fascinated by the opportunities to solve big problems versus nonsense problems, made up problems. I don't think we need another social media platform. Well, that's great and encouraging and maybe a, an opening too for, you know, people who want to solve big problems as a profession, as an industry, that is our, 
profession and industry to solve big problems. You know, some of the things that we've been talking about. How, as we as we close, what advice? I mean, anything that maybe we we didn't dig into enough, or something we didn't really touch on yet? Advice you have for for CEOs and principal leadership teams that just are looking to stay relevant, effective, and just have more success alongside technology and innovation. Any any kind of parting words of advice? Yeah, have more nerdy friends. Like, I think there's this thing where we all kind of hang out with the same people we work with and the same, like we just kind of, it's it's a very insular industry. So, you know, we we go play golf with the same people that, you know, at, our, at other firms or whatnot. You know, we spend a lot of our time at work. And I think it's super important to like expand you know, I, I tend to be a lot of, a lot of my friends, I'm the nerdy friend, you know, like, tell me about this AI thing, KP, like, I, I get a lot of that stuff, right? Um, so I think it's super important. I think you just have to expand and spend time with people in other industries that are doing different things. Like, it's funny, I have, I have a lot of friends in the music industry, people get surprised, I'm like, I have a lot of friends in the music industry. And I learned so much from them. And the thing I learned from them is just how fleeting their product is and just how the constant reinvention, just constantly, um, they have to reinvent what they're working on. They have to reinvent how they work on it. You know, they, they used to be able to get away with vinyl and CDs and streaming came along and then, I mean, it's just so much that goes on in their world that they never get to sit still. And it's quite fascinating. And it's the most esoteric thing you can ever think about, like, as a product, right? Like, how do you like to deliver the next big hit? You know, that's how. Um, and so I, I find it, I mean, I, they think what I do is fascinating. They're like, KP, like robots and stuff. Like, what is that? How does that work? And so there's like this, there's this mutual like disbelief in what the other person does that makes it just a lot of fun. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. How how can folks um, get in touch with you, learn more about Shadow Ventures, Shadow Partners? Yeah. Um, um, best is email. Uh, I actually answer my own email. Um, I manage my own LinkedIn, if you like LinkedIn, you know, that kind of thing. But it's uh, kp at shadow.vc. Okay. I'll make sure I, I link to that in the show notes and uh, also all your, your LinkedIn. Um. KP, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I feel like we could have continued on, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, thank you again. I look forward to connecting with you um, in the future. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. For joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.